Hello, Biocom Chatability podcast fans. Do we have fans, Don? Do you think we have fans yet? We have fans. I, I think we have fans. Yeah. I know of some people that have listened to all of the podcasts that we've put out there. So I guess that constitutes a fan. Otherwise, why would Are they you related to, to you? They're not related to me. Oh, okay, so. good. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a, a special episode we're releasing here. Don and I over the days have discussions about what's going on in the in the world right now with the COVID-19 pandemic. And we decided we needed to do a quick episode here on on respirators and ventilators, more in particular ventilators, as there's more in the news about ventilator production and mass producing them and rapidly producing them. There's some biocompatibility things we felt that, um, you know, we wanted to discuss. Yeah, just looking at, uh, you know, again, mainly the information that's coming out of news and then uh, the guidances that are being issued, not only in the United States, but uh, in the UK, just to see how, how and if, you know, the, the concept or the topic of biocompatibility is actually being covered for, you know, getting products like these out on the market in a really quick fashion. Because let's be honest, in, in this in this industry, quick is not always uh, <laughs> achievable for, for uh, you know, anything that has to be regulated. But uh, in these cases, you know, there's been measures put in place to, to make that happen. So, you know, just determining and figuring out how how that works and, and talking through what we've seen out in the news and, and kind of take it from there. Yeah. So we asked our colleague, um, Dr. Phil Smeraldo, who's been on the show with us before. He has a specialty, at least within his role here at NAMSA, is evaluating the air pathway devices from a toxicology standpoint. So we asked him to join us and he brought some interesting perspective from a toxicologist's viewpoint. And we just kind of discussed it um, in an open forum here for the next 40 minutes or so. We hope you enjoy it and maybe find something useful. And um, if nothing else, it's interesting to talk about companies like Ford and GM and Dyson all stepping up into contributing to helping us heal people who are, are sick with this horrible virus. Yep. And just a, a, a timely discussion for sure. And, and, you know, we like to think it's a discussion that will fade as, as time goes on. And, and right. uh, we'll be able to take this episode down it. someday, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. But, uh, yeah. All right. Thanks, Don. And I uh, hope you all enjoy the episode. Welcome to Biocompatibility, the first ever podcast focused on the biocompatibility of medical devices. NAMS is happy to bring Biocompatibility to you where each episode features leading industry experts and their discussions on biocompatibility challenges. Be sure to visit www.namsa.com for more information and to access all podcasts and transcripts. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Welcome, everybody, to a special episode of Biocompatibility. We have decided to get together here and record an episode focused kind of on the current situation of what's going on with the COVID-19 pandemic. So Don is joining me, of course, and then we also have Dr. Phil Smeraldo joining us as well. Phil, welcome. It's great to be back. Yeah. Don, welcome back. Good to be here. Good to be here. And Phil doesn't have to worry about any, you know, hazing or anything because he's he's been on one of our podcasts before so 
you know. Right. He's a <laughs> he's a veteran now, so. Um. <laughs> I, think, I think he's the first repeat, right? He is the first repeat besides us, of course, right? <laughs> And, and yeah. I, assume, I assume that's because the previous the previous one was was so well received that that you asked me to come back again, right? Is that true? It was. It was actually. It was very well received. This even and I even had really bad audio. Which hey, we were having audio troubles practicing for this one, so maybe it's you, not me, because last time you were here, Phil, we had bad audio. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good stuff. Uh, look at me trying to pass the buck. Anyway. <laughs> The reason we asked Phil to join us is one of the things that's come up so much in the news right now is the use of ventilators and respirators to some extent as well, but really ventilators. And those of you that have attended NAMSA training series know that we talk quite a bit about the biological safety of those devices. In particular, there's a document, ISO 18562 that speaks to the biological evaluation of these devices. So that was kind of our idea, Don, in, in getting together to have this session. Yeah, just to talk about, well, you know, there's so many things to talk about when it comes to uh, the situation at hand right now. But the thing, again, that we attempt to focus on anyways is biocompatibility associated with all these different guidances that are coming out, whether it be in the United States or elsewhere as they pertain to, you know, ventilators, masks, respirators, all those good things. So it's you know, certainly interesting to, to, to at least ponder for those of us that work in the world of biocompatibility every day, you know, where does biocompatibility fall in the scheme of all this stuff? And right. uh, it's, it's, it's in there. It's kind of interesting. It's, it, it, it's in there. I don't think anybody's going to talk about it on the news, but I doubt that CNN will have a story on the biocompatibility of uh, medical devices and how it affects Maybe. the COVID-19. Maybe they'll pick up our podcast and put us on the news. Yeah. I do have a connection at CNN. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, you do. That's, I remember that. Uh, so what so are the things? So there's all these news stories out there right now. And I think that's really what got us talking about the ventilator situation. But one of the things that I looked up first was I think folks have been using the words respirator and ventilator interchangeably, maybe accurately, maybe inaccurately, but a respirator really doesn't do anything but filter, right? So that's a protection device. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a protection piece of equipment for sure. I don't know if you could even technically in the United States call it a device per se. True. Well, the the regular medical masks are devices, but the N95s, like used for construction, are technically not medical devices, right? Um, unless it's a medical, a surgical N95 mask. Okay. <laughs> this is what Phil and I start reading stuff way too long. <laughs> we realized that there's <laughs> masks that I didn't realize. Yeah, there, there's apparently a medical N95, which is a medical device. But you're not going to go to Lowe's and find a medical N95, I would doubt. I, I've never looked, but, you know, certainly you'll find N95s. And then surgical masks are, you know, just like they say, they're a medical device. Um, so a respirator could be like a gas mask or a dust mask or like all those things are considered respirators that basically are kind of here to protect us from getting or giving <laughs> the virus, right? Yeah. yeah. And that's. 
if you go to, again, just from an, a United States point of view, uh, Title 42, Part 84 of the CFR, it talks about all of the different types of respiratory protective devices. And so it talks about things other than just these respirators. I mean, I'm just looking over here on my screen right now, self-contained breathing apparatus, gas masks, supplied air respirators, all of those are covered under that, neath that part of the CFR. And again, like those N95s that aren't the medical ones are, are technically regulated by NIOSH and sister group of the FDA is the way I saw it described, if you will, on the FDA's website. But um, yeah, they, they have a whole section in the CFR that tells you how to- So minimal biocompatibility, product. basically contact. Phil, what's a ventilator though? What's these things that <laughs> Dyson and GM and Ford, and I'll get into some of those stories here in a middle, but, but what's a ventilator though that we're talking about the lack of these life-saving measures that we could be having? Yeah, and, and I guess, you know, just to, and I'm not a, we'll say I'm not an expert on this whole coronavirus or, or oh, problems none caused of us are, by, by, the, the, by the coronavirus. We're not experts. <laughs> but yeah, and I, I, I know very little about what the, uh, you know, the, the, the complications from that and how it works and all that stuff. But what I do know is that patients who are, are having problems because of that virus have a difficult time breathing on their own. And so, so that, that's where the ventilators or, or some type of device that's going to, for lack of a better term, do at least some of the breathing for you, that's where those are going to come into play. So those are, those are actually, you know, not just a, 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 we'll say a filter that goes over your face. This is an actual instrument that is, is actually helping you breathe, whether it's providing a, a positive pressure, you know, type situation or it's, or it's actually doing your inhaling and exhaling for you. So they're, they're very, very different from, we'll say, respirators. In that definition alone to the layman, you know, you would think these are, these are much riskier type things to develop and to produce. Therefore, so you, particularly as a toxicologist with NAMSA, spend a lot of time evaluating these devices for biological safety. Because the risk of something that's going straight into your lungs could be pretty significant. Yeah, and you know the the thing is is that the the lungs are quite efficient at absorbing chemicals and and putting those chemicals into systemic circulation. So this this is you know this isn't like getting exposed to a chemical on your skin, which where your skin has a nice protective barrier that's that's hopefully going to decrease that systemic circulation. But when you're when you're looking at, at the lung, it's actually very efficient in, in absorbing chemicals and, and, and placing them into systemic circulation. So, you know, one of the big concerns with respiratory devices is are they emitting substances into the air pathway that go straight into your lungs? And that, that, that's just a kind of a fundamental uh, risk that's associated with those devices. You know, and as a matter of fact, there's there's a whole, there's a whole series of standards that that start to talk to and and tell you how to address those risks, and they're the ISO one eight five six two series of standards. You know, and that's that's all related to biocompatibility for these types of devices. And and you know, when you kind of no pun intended, but when you live and breathe those types of standards on a daily basis, you can't help but but think of those when you see. Ford making a ventilator or Dyson making a ventilator, you know, those types of things, you can't help but think about that. So 
it, right. it's fascinating. So yeah, we've 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 um, mentioned here a couple of news stories, and so I was joking with the guys. I've never had to research for any of our podcast episodes before, but I actually <laughs> did print off some things for this one. So Ford has details of its current manufacturing where they're going to uh, include building power air purifier parts for 3M um, for a new design to help efficiencies and to scale up ventilator production. I think they're working. I think there's even mention of union and uh, it's going to be amping up capacity for GE's healthcare, GE Healthcare's ventilator. You know, so Ford mentioned, we mentioned Dyson. So this one really caught my interest. So Dyson was asked by the government in the UK, by the prime minister, to design a ventilator that they could produce quickly and get into the market. And and apparently from the news story I have, the government has ordered 10,000 of them. So Dyson's gone from making vacuums and other things, blow dryers. So I guess they already know how to to reverse the suction like we talked about, blow dryers, fans, (laughs) heaters. I love my Dyson heater and fan combo. It's my favorite thing. But now we're doing ventilators. So how do we address that safety? What's the biological safety parameters? These tests can't be performed in a day or two to prove safety. What's the evaluation process like normally? Well, the the normal process, at least for a a device that's going to be emitting, we'll say, dry gas, you know, so we're we're talking about something that, that, that just dry gas is coming out of, not humidified, just dry gas. The... You know, the 18562 standards tell you that you need to monitor for the volatile, for the emission of volatile organic substances. And so those are going to be substances that, we'll say, evaporate and, and enter the air. And it tells you that you need to measure the amounts of those substances that are emitted from the device over a series of time points. And then that information gets sent to a toxicologist to see what's the toxicological profile of those chemicals. Are there any risks for systemic tox, irritation, you know, whatever information is available in the literature. And, and hopefully you can get to a, a, a safe conclusion that the risk from those chemicals is going to be low or negligible. That's, that's kind of the goal. Mm-hmm. Now, there's, there's another major part that, that goes into that testing, and that's measuring the emission of particulate matter. You know, the, the concept there is that you, you don't want this device, which is delivering gas to your lungs, to be emitting a lot of particulates. Because, you know, a lot of those particulates are going to get sent into the lungs. They're going to sit there for a while, and they may or may not get cleared right away. You know, you think back to the, the whole asbestos situation where you had fibers, where people inhaling fibers that the body couldn't get rid of, essentially forming a chronic inflammatory response and then causing long-term problems. So, you know, these, these are potential risks from these devices, and, and I think these risks at least need to be considered before we just start putting these devices into use uh, clinically. So, yeah, it's not just a straightforward – I know that it, it's kind of miraculous if Dyson was able to put together a, a device in 10 days. You know, the reality is, is that the testing of that device may take much longer than 10 days if, if it's done according to the current requirements, you know. All right. So – it's a risk evaluation. We talk about, obviously, biocompatibility is all about evaluating risk. Like, you can't tell something's biocompatible unless you have a duration and a type of contact and, a, and an evaluation of, of that. So the risk here may be life or death if they don't get one, right? Therefore, maybe the evaluation of risk is more based on, we'll worry about those long-term effects later. 
right now it's the acute effects of helping them breathe. And so Don, I think we found a document that the MR MHRA has that they've addressed this a little bit. I don't know, maybe we talk about that a little bit and how it differs from yeah. a standard it's evaluation. Interesting. It's interesting because it within the, the MR MHRA document. So as I I think I understood the, the news article regarding Dyson. Dyson was developing these ventilators specifically for use in the UK. And they had indicated in one news story that I was looking at that they were working hand in hand with MHRA to help, you know, design, develop, whatever along the way. So inside the document that MHRA just recently released regarding uh, ventilators, there's a section on bio biological safety. And that stand, that document references ISO 18562 that Phil's been talking about. And it basically goes through and does risk mitigation through different means so that one could, I would say, essentially claim that they're meeting the requirements of 18562 without necessarily doing maybe too much testing, if any testing at all, but there's things that they've put in place to address those risks that Phil's been talking about. So two, two of the biggies are chemicals. Materials, right? Two yeah. materials, okay. Yep, and manufacturing, because yep. two things that Phil mentioned were chemicals coming out causing a, a response or physical, let's say contaminants, particles getting released, both mentioned 18562. So MHRA in that document, they, they basically say, you know, if you do a good job of selecting the right materials, so polyethylenes and polypropylenes are mentioned, they specifically say don't use PVCs, you know, so trying to avoid the new Sorry, PVC <laughs> manufacturers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they, they didn't like it. <laughs> and then they're also saying from a manufacturing process to not use mold release agents, but if they are used, throw away the first 20 or so items so that you can get rid of the mold release agent. So don't use the first 20, throw those away and keep extruding more after that. So trying to control by virtue of selecting good materials and controlling manufacturing processes, trying to control the chemicals that could be potentially available in a volatile sense to the people that get exposed to these ventilators. Um, and then also on the manufacturing side for particles, they're saying, you know, make sure you produce them in a reasonably clean environment. Doesn't have to be a clean room, but reasonably clean. So apparently, my garage would not, I think, meet the bill. So, uh, maybe, maybe not. I mean, who knows? Yeah. I, don't, I mean, there's, yeah, there. I, I just coated some woods with some urethane, so there's some volatiles out in the garage right now. So I, I don't think um, uh, it would, it would meet what our requirements here. So. Again, but it says if all these things, it says if A or D in this document, um, chemical or particulate testing of the air coming out of the breathing, breathing circuit should not be necessary. Mm. So boom, you just got to an end without testing. In terms of biocompatibility, that's all I'm talking about. There's other stuff in there as well, but I'm just talking about that. And then it talks about, so Phil mentioned dry gas. That's where, Phil, I think you started your description was dry gas. But if you have... Yep. Yep. A moist environment, you're delivering moist air and condensate could be delivered to the patient. Then again, there's another physical control that they put in place, which is an end of the line filter that collects both moisture as well as uh, particulate matter. So 
it, it basically says chemicals removed from medical device by action of water, ensure that there's a filter used between the ventilator and the breathing system. So again, now that's between the, the, the system. So you still got the ventilator circuit that's got to get the ventilator hooked up to the patient. But just as it comes out of the ventilator, I guess, you know, we're trying to control those risks as well. So I think it's interesting in that it, it is a fairly short section, but it does go through the key aspects of risk associated with these systems in, in the world of biocom. So it's interesting. So I think one of the things that we talk a lot when it comes to, to biological safety is how if you let a table guide your endpoints, then your evaluation could be ridiculous. Like in this instance, if I just went to the table and had to evaluate everything that was needed to, to get this on the market, it wouldn't help. So they've really used a risk evaluation process here, whatever it might be, to say, what are our risks? What can we put in place in a short term to mitigate those risks as best we can to save lives if needed? Like, I mean, I think it's a good example of how you can't rely on a table and a standard to always evaluate your biocom. Yeah, I agree, agree. Now, you know, you, you kind of, and, and let me know if you're not ready to go here yet, but, but you started to go down a path, which is also kind of entwined in all of this. And, and that is, is the introduction of that document from the UK. It's very interesting because it says the proposed, it is proposed these ventilators would be used for short-term stabilization for a few hours, but may extend up to a day. You know, this is... I think what they're talking about here is, is, I don't want to say lackadaisical attitude on biological safety, but addressing biological safety for a, we'll say, a wide variety of devices, all kind of in, in, in about half a page of information. I, I think the intent here is that, that patients, if these are used on patients, it would only be for short-term exposure. You know, just to get that patient through. I, I don't know that any, anywhere in this document it, it makes any claim that you can have patients hooked up to this for, not, you know, a month or something. I'm just making up some numbers, but, yep. but, but I think the concept here was just let's get something to, to, to get these patients through for a day or, or, or something like that, just until a, a, a we'll say a CE marked device becomes available that they can use. Um, yeah, so like a, a bridge to an alternative. So. This is a, right. a saving measure that can bridge us for a day if needed. And I think in that point is, is really key. I'd missed that in the document. Obviously, I didn't read the whole thing. Um, but <laughs> I think that that's key because that certainly says that they're going, we feel for 24 hours it's necessary and can be as safe as can be based on these guidances. But beyond that, I did read where it said, absolutely, when this is over, these things basically need to disappear. Like be gone with them because they're not, they're not acceptable. I do think that it's that analysis, that risk analysis. And maybe, I mean, they may have even had some toxicologists guide them in this document. I would hope so. Maybe. Mm -hmm. No, well, I was just thinking about, you know, with the, it, and this is maybe more for the toxicologist in the, in the audience, but, but I know with the, with the 18562 standard standards, they they're, when it comes to like TTC levels, they're pretty liberal. They, for, a, for an adult, it, it says that for, for a 24 hour period, you can get, uh, you know, 360 micrograms of, of an unidentified substance essentially. And, and that the, the risk there is pretty low. 
So I, I, I think when you, when you, you know, put those high exposure limits in an acute scenario, you put that with the device that, that at least this document is claiming it would be just used for a short period of time. I, I think that's where you get to, we'll say, I don't want to say low risk, I don't want to say negligible, but maybe the risk you'd say is acceptable given the current situation. So, yeah. Yep. All right. So, so that's the, the UK situation, which, you know, that one's the, the most exciting one because of that Dyson project. I mean, I just thought that was, uh, you know, the story captivated me from the beginning and I was like, oh, this is interesting. But then, so let's shift to what's happening here in the U.S. Obviously, FDA has issued a few things. Like I have found fact sheets for using alternative devices for patients and providers. I've found the letter to the healthcare providers, as well as I think, did they call it a guidance document? Yeah, guidance yeah. for industry on, yeah. they call it enforcement policy. Yeah, you're talking about the one the one released, I think it was on the 26th. Yeah, so it's fairly recent where they've actually given some guidance on, okay, we know Ford and GM are going to help do this. We couldn't, under the current regulations, allow this to happen and those to be used in hospitals. So it seems like some things had to be put in place. Some regulations loosened a bit. Um so that things could be put in place. So if we can ramp up manufacturing of these devices in other locations, it can happen. Yeah, and, and you know, it's, it's specific to like the, the ventilator topic, I guess. Right. I mean, they've, they've done it yeah, in other areas The majority areas of this well. is, the severity is ventilators. Yes, the PPE yeah. is super important. And lots of people yeah. are working to help that. You know, my friend, is sewing masks at home and she's sending me one, you know? So lots of that type of stuff is happening, but these ventilators are really the critical point. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I think in terms of the FDA's guidance on the ventilators, again, trying to look at it from the viewpoint of biocompatibility, they, uh, they've made reference to ISO 18562 in that guidance as well. It's there as a reference standard, but it's, I mean, certainly different than like the MHRA document that we were talking about. It doesn't have a section on biocompatibility in terms of, you know, mitigating risks and that sort of thing. Because they're saying we still have to use cleared devices. We're not taking a Dyson device over here. That That's the main that far. Yeah, they, they're allowing you to change the indication for use on a cleared device. They would rather you do that than just come up with a brand new device. I mean, certainly that's the preference. So um, they talk about CPAP devices being used in place of a ventilator, you know, or anesthesia machines being used instead of ventilators. They're changing the, the indication to basically allow for the need at the present time. It, it does towards the end of the guidance, you know, it talks about a device that isn't cleared in the United States for this given use, you know, basically opening up the line of communications between industry and the FDA if you want to talk about trying to get a device like that quickly on the market. Now, I don't know what would happen if you open up that line of conversation and where it would go, but I think, I think even there, I think the preference is if you have a device that's on the market in, say, the EU, it's already, you know, got a CE mark or something being used. It's just not cleared 
in the United States and you want to get it on the market quickly, then then maybe you could uh, do that. But again, they're using, it, yeah, they're using the emergency use authorization yeah. act or process. And so, but again, if somebody came to NAMSA today and said, I got this ventilator, I want to get it into the market in the U.S., you know, possibly, like you said, there might be some loopholes here, but without it being previously marketed here, I mean, I know we've had people do this already and we've had certain, you know, parts and pieces, folks come to us asking us about things. But as far as biological safety goes, is there anything we can do in a short term or people can do in a short term that would meet what you see in this guidance? For a brand new device, I think you're still going to have to have the data. Yeah. That's my opinion. Thank you. Somebody might be on the market now, but the, the guidance does say whatever like leniency is granted, you know, you got to make sure that you have information available. So when this all hopefully passes, we can make sure that things are documented in your files. And one of those is going to be biocompatibility. If you could even get down that path without needing to submit data, I mean, you're at least going to have to submit stuff that like the MHRA was talking about. What materials did you use? How do you make these things? How do you control all this? Because otherwise, you're just asking somebody to look the other way and and hope that the cure isn't worth the worse than the poison. And yeah, and that and I, you know, I just I just don't I just don't know that at least with my experience with the FDA, I'm not sure that they're going to. I'm not sure. And, I'm not sure that they're going to prove a device with a paper-based argument alone. I think I think their willingness to 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 consider devices that have CE mark that may not be sold in the United States, but but things that have CE mark or or it also lists things that that are that are sold in Canada that they're willing to to look at. But I think the context there is that if you've already got those devices approved in those markets, then you have a data set. Have you have data. you know and. Yeah, you've got safety established some way. And, and, and I think that's where the FDA is going to give more preference to those types of devices, just because you've got something, you know, as opposed to a brand new device. Um, so what about these manufacturing facilities then? How is, what's the loophole to be able to all of a sudden produce these in a GM plant? That, in my mind, triggers a biological evaluation, right? I can't just <laughs> switch manufacturing places. And I certainly don't want to introduce, you know, the new car smell into my ventilator. So how, how are they doing that? Like, I know, you know, there's lots of pressure for these companies, these auto manufacturers to help. How's that happening without getting rid of all regulation? I've seen some things that talk about the supply chain being fed for one versus, you know, whether it just be materials access to materials. And if one can say that the material in general is low risk, maybe that's, that's one thing. Plus, it, I mean, it could be that in some cases, the, the part that one of these other companies is supplying is not a high risk component of the overall system in terms of bio, biocompatibility safety. I mean, that, that certainly yeah. could be part of it. Okay, but doesn't the guidance say you don't have to approve, we don't have to approve all these changes, but you have to have okay. documentation in place. So they're giving them that loophole has to say you don't have to we don't have to approve your new or or clear your new manufacturing facility clear a 510k for it but you need to have make sure you're following all the regulations and have done all the work 
on your own, basically. It's an honor system. Yeah, I, 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 I kind of think that's the case, but, but I, you know, and I, and I think there is wording in that document that says, but that data better be available if we come asking for it, you know? Right. It's, so it's, uh, <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know, and I, I, I don't know how these types of devices are getting scaled up, whether you're, you know, we'll say an auto manufacturer teaming with a, a, a company that has made uh, ventilators in the past, but but I, I I guess and I don't know how all that's working out. But but I can see you know maybe making a prototype and 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 potentially sending that off for testing while you're making the other five thousand that you've promised. And and I guess you're kind of crossing your fingers that that oh. prototype is going to have passing result. Um or or, or at least the, the the so maybe a screening on a prototype. You know I I don't know the answer to that. But if I was in charge, that's probably what I would do. At least then I would have some data to support a claim of safety if the FDA came asking for it. I don't know, just my two cents. Yeah. Don, what do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I think the data still got to be there of some type, whether it be actual test data or some type of an a document that shows how you did your evaluation, especially when you see that, like, that FDA guidance, you know, make mention also of, um, you know, ensuring that there's proper documentation of quality management systems and things like that. Right. I, I mean, you know, it just makes you at least made me come away with the feeling that, like, you know, they still eventually they want data on file to show that the I's have been dotted and T's crossed just might be done at an accelerated pace for the time being. Or, again, with some unwritten leniency put out there. And, and in, like you said, Jerry, there is some leniency that's written down in the document already. I mean, you know things that in the past would require a new submission because it's a substantial change or something like that might not need that formal submission now. But like we keep saying, you better have the information available once we get past this. Yep. And there's really, I don't remember any what? verbiage in here that says, and after this is over, you have to remove them as much as the MRHRA one did. I think the guidance for the healthcare providers does when you're like using CPAPs, for example. Oh yeah, that you'll go back to the normal use of those devices and, and uh, an actual device for what you need it to do. You know, along the same lines, I don't know, and I might have missed it, but but remember we talked about that language where you give a you, you treat a patient with this type of device just long enough to get them through, and then once a we'll say a a, a normal FDA approved ventilator becomes available, then you hook the patient up to that. You know, what would you call it a bridge to? Uh, yeah, bridge to an use. alternative, like yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I don't. I might have missed it, but I don't see that type of language anywhere in this FDA document either. Again, just one difference between the, assuming that's true, just another, just you know, one difference between the UK kind of approach versus what the FDA's put out there so far. Yeah. Um, just, just an interesting tidbit. I, I, I don't know, but but it's interesting that the. the for the FDA document, they'd rather have you used a use a FDA approved device off label, you know, as opposed to as opposed to some other alternatives. So it's it's interesting. Um, yeah, there is some leniency in some cases for for some things. I think it's you know it's kind of clear why it's not a fast, easy solution to all of a sudden manufacture new ventilators. Like that's maybe we've. I mean, I think that was certainly one of the points we wanted to talk about. What about some of the other things that we're hearing about or seeing? 3D printing is a big thing. I've heard face masks being 3D printed. 
stuff like that that's pretty low risk. Again, I think we have to bring in our risk evaluation analysis that outlines everything we do in biological safety. Low risk devices are going to require a lesser stringent evaluation. But what other kinds of things? I mean, and I know you guys have had talks with customers, so I certainly don't want you to compromise any integrity. That's not what we're trying to do here. But I think why somebody could take something they've 3D printed for, maybe they've printed it for a arm sling, and now they can use it for a nasal cannula. How could that happen? Like, what do you see or what do you think about the biological evaluation of those types of things? Yeah, and some of those cases, I guess, you know, I before I'd say as a company, I would want to move into that or make that assumption that I can just, you know, make something else for a different use now that I would at least want to understand the risk involved with putting that device, that material in that type of situation so that I could say, look, I, you know, does this, does this actually make sense? Even if it can help, are we sure that there's some information that we have already that would indicate that it's going to be safe in this actual use? I mean, I would just from my own point of view, I, I'd want as a company, I'd, I'd want to make sure that I at least looked at that before I said, you know, we're even going to attempt this. If, if I get past that, then I can move on to the next step. And maybe, and maybe I do have enough data of various types already and experiences with that material, that 3D process to where I can say, look, we can reach a conclusion fairly quickly to say that we feel the risk is, is minimal and let's move forward with it. But I think you at least have to do that in that situation. Otherwise, again, you're, you, you could be putting people at greater risk and you don't want to do that, obviously. They're already in bad shape if they're going to the point of being on a ventilator in this situation anyways. Yeah, Phil, do you have anything to add? I mean, as far as I know you work with a lot of different suppliers and, and ventilator manufacturers and, you know, I guess I don't, I don't think anybody's running out there trying to, to create the wheel here and to try to fix this in the, in the amount of time frame that, that we need results. Right. Right. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've, I've been working with, you know, as you mentioned, a couple, you know, devices that are, are most of they are ventilators. And, and it, it was interesting because I had a, a conversation with one of them and I said, you know, based on your device, which we had, we had, you know, VOC data for, we have particulate data for, we have all that information and I've, I've evaluated and it, it, I, I claim that the device is safe. And, and so I asked him, I said, you know, if, if, is this a, a device that you have an opportunity to push it through the FDA because it may help with the current situation? And it was, it was fascinating because the response I got was that the, the materials needed to make a bunch of those devices that company just didn't have. So they said, even if we got approved tomorrow, we couldn't scale up production. And boy, it's, it's heartbreaking to hear that because they've got a device that's ready to go. They just, they, they, they just, they can't make them fast enough. They're just, you know, materials are in such high demand and, and low supply that, that they're stuck. You know, I think that, that, that type of situation feeds into these, you know, alternatives that the, that the FDA and or the UK is, is proposing to get out there because, you know, the reality is, is these patients just need help. And, and, and I think you mentioned it a minute ago is that in some cases, the outcome, if they don't get any help at all, is going to be really bad. And, you know, maybe it is worth the risk of, of hooking that patient up, at least for a transient amount of time to get them through, get them through the worst. You know, again, it's not my decision to do that, but, you know, I can, I can see where they're going with it. 
Yeah, it's it's a tough situation. It is. It is certainly. Yeah, yeah. I I, th- I think one thing that was interesting that Don and I had talked about a little bit, you know, a little bit earlier today was that there's, you know, there's a series of tubings and masks and all that stuff that 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 connects the ventilator or or the breathing apparatus, or you know, the the, the ventilator to the patient. And and I guess to this point, I've not heard of those types of devices being in short supply. You know, we had, we. Had, Don and I were kind of talking about it, and, and the idea there was that a lot of that stuff is disposable anyway. So, so I guess that the, the concept there is that if the device manufacturers knew that those are disposable, hopefully they have a stockpile already already prepared and ready to go. So it's, it's I don't know, there's a lot of things to think about. And then do you look at the reusability of them? Like what can we reprocess and clean, you know, yeah, if that right. even becomes an option? And, of course, that's a whole other ball of wax. But, you know. I'm sure that everybody, I'm sure there's lots of people out there evaluating all these types of things in this situation. And we certainly, yeah. we, uh, we definitely didn't want to do this today thinking that we were going to come up with any solutions. We thought we'd, we'd shed some light on the biological evaluation of these devices, probably offer up a lot more questions than answers. Anything else you guys want to, you think we need to cover? I mean, I think we've kind of covered a lot of what we, we plan to. We certainly are not making light of the situation we are all, you know, working from home and we're all staying in our, our social distancing. And some of our states where we live are, are actually asking us to, to not go out at all. So it's in all of our lives right now. And we thought a podcast episode would be useful to our teams and probably even useful to us to just talk through this some together. So you guys want to add anything else? I think we've touched on everything I was thinking of for today, for sure. Yeah. I think it's, you know, one, one thing that I, I it, it, it's humbling to see all these different groups trying to work together to, to solve this big problem that we're, that the world is facing right now. So it's amazing. Um, Certainly. I don't know how else to describe it, but it's, it's humbling to see all these, you know, whether it's auto manufacturers or other people trying to work together to solve this problem. It's, 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 uh, I don't know, it's uplifting. It's, it's good to hear that. So. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. And, you know, we're, we're doing our part as best we can at NAMSA and, and I know we're supporting as many people we can and trying to keep our labs up running. We, we do a lot of work on these types of devices, even to release them. So manufacturing suppliers are relying on us to stay in our roles and doing our jobs and we're grateful to be involved and to be doing it. And so thank you both for your time today. I think it was fun. I think we got some things discussed and we're certainly hopeful for a, really quick resolution to this problem that uh, has taken over our world and um, just looking for the best in everything here. Yep, for sure. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Biocompatibility, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast store. For free resources and material, remember to visit www.namsa.com slash resources slash podcast.